This morning we're going to be reading from Mark 1, verses 21 through 39. If you have your Bibles, go ahead and open those and we'll read the scripture. Starting from verse 21. And they went to Capernaum, and immediately on the Sabbath he entered the synagogue and was teaching. And they were astonished at his teaching, for he taught them as one who had authority and not as the scribes. And immediately there was in their synagogue a man with an unclean spirit, and he cried out, What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be silent and come out of him. And the unclean spirit, convulsing him and crying out with a loud voice, came out of him. And they were all amazed, so that they questioned among themselves, saying, What is this? A new teaching with authority? He commands even the unclean spirits, and they obey him. And at once his fame spread everywhere throughout all the surrounding region of Galilee. And immediately he left the synagogue and entered the house of Simon and Andrew with James and John. Now Simon's mother-in-law lay ill with a fever. And immediately they told him about her. And he came and took her by the hand and lifted her up. And the fever left her, and she began to serve him. That evening at sundown, they brought to him all who were sick or oppressed by demons. And the whole city was gathered together at the door. He healed many who were sick with various diseases and cast out many demons. And he would not permit the demons to speak because they knew him. And rising very early in the morning, while it was still dark, he departed and went out to a desolate place, and there he prayed. And Simon and those who were with him searched for him, and they found him and said to him, Everyone is looking for you. And he said to them, Let us go on to the next towns, that I may preach there also, for that is why I came out. And he went out through all Galilee, preaching in their synagogues and casting out demons. Uh, as you just heard, this morning's text is a lengthy one, and uh, it took us five weeks to go through the first 20 verses of the Gospel of Mark, and so as you hear about 20 verses there, you may be wondering how on earth are we going to make it through all of this in our allotted time. Uh, I'm wondering the same thing, if we're going to be honest here. Uh, there, there's so much depth in those verses that Dave just read to us. There's so many riches, and we're not going to be able to look at all of them, uh, but at the same time, it does make a lot of sense for us to look at these four or five different short stories of Jesus at work in Capernaum, because uh, if, you, if you read them closely, you'll notice that they span about 30 hours. Uh, it is a very quick uh, account. It, it covers what is considered to be, according to the Gospel of Mark, the first day of public ministry in Jesus's life. What, accomplishes, what Jesus accomplishes on his first day on the job is, is quite astounding. He enters uh, the day a respected uh, but relatively unknown traveling teacher, and then by the time uh, our text is over, he will become the most popular man in all of Galilee. This text takes place right after uh, our text from last week when Jesus calls the, the first four disciples, these four fishermen, to follow him. Jesus, remember last week, is walking by the Sea of Galilee. He sees these four fishermen. He calls them to be his disciples. And then right after that, 
Jesus and those followers, they travel to the small town, small city, small village of Capernaum. Uh, Capernaum uh, is, is small according to our modern standards. Uh, it's a fishing village located on the northern shores of the Sea of Galilee. Uh, and yet Capernaum had about uh, 1,000 to, uh, 1, to 1,500 people living in it at the time, which is, is actually quite large uh, for the first century. Uh, most towns, most villages uh, in Galilee at that time had only about three or 400 people in them. So this is, a, this is quite the booming metropolis uh, in that day. You can see its location on the map right there. It's circled in blue compared to the rest of Galilee. Galilee, the region is, is colored in red there. It's also uh, found in your Bible notes. Capernaum was uh, located on one of the most important roads uh, in that day, connecting Egypt to Damascus. It was one of the most important north-south trade routes uh, in the ancient uh, uh, area of Palestine. And uh, because of that, it was an important city. It was important enough for it to have a tax collector on duty, which we will see here in a few chapters. His name is Levi or Matthew. And one of the things that we notice as we, was, as we look at these texts is that uh, Capernaum is, is the, the home of Simon, it's the home of Andrew, it's probably the home of James, it's probably the home of John, and, and the Gospel of Mark and, and Gospel of Matthew all, also tell us that it appears that Capernaum is Jesus' home as well. Jesus lives here in Capernaum for, for a few months uh, at least, and it's the setting of, of most of Jesus' ministry in the Galilean region. It had a large, again, by ancient standards, a large synagogue, and that is where this morning's text begins. Now, if you remember uh, in our first week in the Gospel of Mark, I, I mentioned that there are two themes that we're going to keep coming back to in the Gospel of Mark, two themes that, that Mark continues to ask. And the first one is about Jesus. He, he keeps asking us, he wants us to ask about Jesus, who is Jesus? And so in virtually every story, it's kind of left open-ended, and it asks the question, who is Jesus? The crowds here in this text, they, they end at one point by saying, what is this? It's a question asking, what is going on? Who is this Jesus? So that's the first theme. And a second theme that is found throughout the Gospel of Mark is one of discipleship. It is the question, okay, now that we know who Jesus is, now that we've answered the question of who Jesus is, we have to ask, what does that mean for you and me? And so as we work our way through this passage, these several texts this morning, uh, those are the questions I want us to ask. I want us to ask, what do these texts tell us about Jesus? What do they reveal to us about who Jesus is? And then after that, I want us to ask the question, well, how, how are we supposed to respond? What is God asking of us to do in response? And so let's, uh, let's pray as we, uh, as we approach God's word once more. God, as we approach um, the gospel of Mark, we're just humbled. We're humbled by Jesus' first day of ministry in Capernaum, and uh, we're humbled to see how much you accomplished in such a short time. We are astounded to see your power at work through simple words, through simple touches. God, I, I confess that I'm convicted at your, command, your commitment to prayer in these verses, and, and God, we just gather in awe. We gather in awe before your word this morning, asking that you would speak to us through your spirit. Thank you, God. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. 
Well, I imagine uh, that the events that uh, Dave just read to us uh, on that Saturday morning, that Sabbath morning in Capernaum, they probably started the way most Sabbaths started in Capernaum in that day that started for decades. After all, the people of Capernaum, they gathered together on a Saturday morning. They gathered to, to worship. They gathered to proclaim their faith in the God of Israel. They gathered to, to proclaim their, their faith in his promises for his people. They sang psalms. They, they read scriptures, and, and there was teaching. In the ancient synagogues, uh, it was commonplace for those who were traveling itinerant teachers uh, to actually provide the bulk of a teaching uh, on a Saturday morning for the Sabbath service when they were in town. And Jesus fits that bill. He is a traveling teacher in Galilee at this point. And so as Jesus comes forward to bring the word that morning, uh, nothing out of the ordinary is taking place. And then Jesus opens his mouth and everything changes forever. You see, ancient scribes, ancient rabbis, they were not exactly known for their powerful exposition of God's word. The typical scribe would stand in front of the congregation in the synagogue, and then they would spend the next several minutes, and they would read what different rabbis and scribes said about a text. And so they would say, Rabbi Jonah said this about that text, but after all, uh, Rabbi Samuel said this, and you can't forget about Rabbi Nathaniel who told us this, and on and on and on this would go. And so it'd be as if I stood up here and I read to you all of my commentaries verbatim. It would be quite dry, uh, very technical. And so it's not at all surprising when Jesus stands up in front of the congregation, there is shock. There is shock that this young carpenter from backwater Nazareth, he stands up and rather than reciting the traditions, rather than reciting or referring back to the rabbis and the scribes, instead, he declares the message of the kingdom that is described in Mark chapter 1, verse 15, when he says this, the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand, repent and believe in the gospel. And that's just a summary, that's not all Jesus said, it's a summary of the message that Jesus is proclaiming. So here is Jesus. He's, he's standing in front of the congregation. He's standing before this crowd in the synagogue on Saturday morning. And here is a man who didn't need to rely on the words of rabbis. He didn't need to rely on the words of those who came before him for his authority. Instead, his authority was rooted in his very being. This word authority in Greek, it, it, it literally means out of the original stuff which I think is just the perfect description of what Jesus is doing here. Out of the original stuff, his teaching comes from his very being. And so it's no wonder that the crowd responds with astonishment, as described in verse 22. And they were astonished at his teaching, for he taught them as one who had authority and not as the scribes. This word astonished uh, conveys a sense of fear. It conveys a sense of, of trepidation at what had just taken place, this message this authority, the, the claims that Jesus makes uh, as he stood before them, they are not at all what they were expecting, and so they are frightened. They are scared by what has taken place. There's this mix of fear and awe uh, that, that's found in the Old Testament whenever God appears to people, whenever he reveals himself to people, and that's the exact same fear and astonishment that's found here in Jesus' teaching. They're, they're frightened not because Jesus is standing up there shouting at them. They're frightened because they feel that there is this weight and there is this authority in Jesus' very presence. 
Now, if you've ever stood before something that's particularly majestic uh, or, or beautiful in creation, something like the mountains or, or uh, the Grand Canyon or, or Niagara Falls, you might know a little bit of what the crowd felt that morning. There is this inseparable mix of fear. If you were to stand at the rim of the Grand Canyon or stand right at the rim of, the Niagara, uh, of Niagara Falls, there's this mix of fear and awe that if, if you get any closer, you're going to topple over the edge and you are going to die and yet there's also this awe, this sense of, oh, I just, I just got to get a little bit closer. I just got to get a little bit closer to soak in what I am seeing here. That's what's taking place here with the crowds. They are drawn to Jesus. They, they can't get enough of Jesus. And yet they also are scared to death of Jesus. They don't, know, they don't have a category for who this man is. And that's just the beginning of that Sabbath morning in Capernaum. That's just the beginning of, of Jesus beginning to reveal himself to this congregation. He begins to teach about the kingdom, and this, this teaching is so authoritative that it actually leads to the manifestation of a demon in their presence, in the midst of this congregation. And the text actually hints, or seems to suggest, that this is a man who had lived in their midst, who had worshipped in their midst for some times, and yet it wasn't until Jesus' powerful teaching that it reveals himself. And that's a terrifying thought that this man lived in their midst. And it's, it's really an, an indictment of the, the teaching in Capernaum that it was so lifeless until Jesus came forth and proclaimed the message of the kingdom. So this demon, he, he reveals himself, and, and this demon is described as an unclean spirit here in this text. And that doesn't mean that this is a, a, a spirit that is causing this man to be sick, but instead it's actually a statement of his soul, that his soul is so uh, unclean, it's so impure before God. He's so unholy compared to the holiness of God that he's separated from God. And there's, there's nothing that can bridge that gap between this man and the wickedness of his soul and who God is. And so this demon uh, reveals itself and speaks uh, in this confrontation between good and evil, between, uh, between it and, and Jesus. And you can, as you, you look at the words that the demon says, you can almost hear the, the hatred and the contempt that this thing is saying as it's dripping off of his words to Jesus. He says, what do you have to do with us? Which is a common Jewish way of saying, leave me alone. It's not your time yet. The demon reveals itself. And in so doing, I think it reveals two things to us. First, this demon has full awareness of who Jesus is, completely understands who Jesus is. Unlike the crowds, unlike even the disciples who have no idea who Jesus is and what that means, this demon nails it right on the head from the very beginning. It knows who Jesus is. It says, you're the Holy One of God. And he knows exactly what Jesus has come to do. He says, you're coming to destroy us. You're coming to destroy all evil forever. But in its anger and in its hatred toward God, it is furious that Jesus is bringing the kingdom now. He says, leave me alone. It's not your time yet. This is an interesting uh, theme that we pick up in, in the rest of Scripture. If you look at the, uh, at the book of Revelation, Revelation chapter 12, it tells us about the beast uh, wreaking havoc on the world. And one of the things that it says is that uh, his wrath is great because he knows his time is short. That's a really important verse because it reminds us that the end is never in question. 
The end is never in question. Jesus is going to win, and even evil knows that. And so the wrath that we see from this demon is not because he thinks that he has a chance. It's actually because he is upset that Jesus is infringing on his territory so soon that the kingdom is being brought even now. When Jesus stood before everyone and said, the kingdom of God is at hand, this demon is upset because Jesus is bringing the kingdom and his end is drawing ever nearer. So that's the first thing that we notice from this text. The second thing that we notice from, uh, from this demon's words are, are that they're actually an attempt to control Jesus. In ancient times, it was commonplace uh, that if you, there was this widespread belief that if you knew the true name of a person, then you could exercise authority over that person. You would have some sort of control over him. And so notice what the demon is saying to Jesus. He begins, and the first thing he says is, I know who you are, Jesus of Nazareth. He says, I know who you are. You're the Holy One of God. He's trying to exert his authority. He's trying to claim this, uh, this position of authority over Jesus, over the king, over his kingdom. And how does Jesus respond? Well, his response shows just how powerful Jesus is. This demon is rattling on and on and on, and Jesus simply says two short phrases. He says, be quiet and get out. Be quiet and get out. Ancient exorcisms were extremely complex things. There are Jewish texts from around the same time that show us uh, what all of the steps that you had to go through in an exorcism. It was very common for you actually to take a, a smelly, this is going to kind of sound humorous, and I guess it's kind of meant to be. Um, you would actually smell, a, a, a shove a smelly plant up a person's nose, hoping that it would make them sneeze, and when they sneeze, the demon would come out. And so this was a common place. It was a common occurrence uh, for Jewish exorcists as they would, they would walk around and they would perform these exorcisms. That was one of the ways that they would do. They would go through all these complex rituals in order to gain control over the demonic. But the most important thing in all of these rituals was the belief or the, the, the importance of calling on a name of a higher power in order to get rid of the, the demon. There was this widespread belief that the key to getting rid of a spirit was making sure that you had a more powerful spirit on your side. And so if you wanted to get rid of this, you know, uh, this B-team level uh, demon, you would, you would call on the name of a, a more powerful angel than him, and he would have to obey because you were in the right company. But that's not what Jesus does. What does Jesus do? He doesn't call on anyone. He just says, be quiet and get out. Jesus is making a statement of his authority here that he does not need anyone else to get rid of evil. There is no calling on the name of another demon. There is no ritual. There is no higher authority. Jesus simply speaks, and the demon is forced to submit. No wonder the crowd responds by saying, what is this? They don't, they don't have a category for what Jesus is doing in their midst. And so it's no wonder then that the crowd responds with this amazement, that they are shocked, they are marveling. Jesus doesn't rest on any authority except for his own. And then Mark gives us a little editorial note at the end of this first story in the, in the synagogue here. He says that what happens over the next coming weeks is Jesus' fame spreads like wildfire. Jesus becomes the most popular person in all of Galilee to the point that he can't even enter a town without being mobbed by needy people. Take a look at, at verse 45 of chapter 1. But Jesus went out, or excuse me, but this man Jesus heals that we'll look at next week. But he went out and began to talk freely about it and to spread the news so that Jesus could no longer openly enter a town, but was out in desolate places and people were coming to him from every quarter. 
what starts as a normal Saturday in Capernaum, this normal Saturday Sabbath service becomes one of the most memorable moments of these people's lives. People are terrified. People are in awe by this traveling teacher who tells them about this kingdom and then shows them the power of that kingdom with his teaching and by simply commanding an evil spirit to disappear. And as soon as it all starts, it's over. The crowds are still processing what has just taken place, what has just transpired, and then the text tells us Jesus immediately left. Jesus and his four disciples, these four fishermen, they leave and they go to Simon's house. Uh, They go to Simon's house where they're going to have Sabbath lunch. And so if you ever wondered uh, whether the after-church meal was, was uh, something that's relatively new. No, it's been around for thousands of years. That's what they were doing. They were going to, to Simon's house for lunch after the church service. And, and what we know actually from uh, excavations is that Simon's house was less than 100 feet from the synagogue. And so this is a very quick trip. As soon as they leave the synagogue, they are virtually home and they have disappeared. And Jesus is untouchable, at least for now. Now, before we jump into this next text about Jesus and and Simon's mother-in-law, I want to just draw two quick notes, uh, things to your attention here. First, as Jesus goes to Simon's house, one, notice the hospitality of Simon. Uh, He he brings Jesus into his house, and he makes sure that he's taken care of, not just for a quick meal, but for the rest of the afternoon, for the rest of the Sabbath. He wants to make sure that Jesus is taken care of. And we've talked about the importance of hospitality here at Crosswinds, and here we see a wonderful example from one of the leaders of the early church. Second thing, last week we talked about the importance of discipleship, and we talked about the costly call of obedience that Jesus places on our lives. And one of the things that we saw is that Simon, Andrew, James, and John, they leave everything, according to Luke 5, they leave everything to follow Jesus. But that doesn't mean they left it all forever. Here we see that Simon actually doesn't leave everything, abandon his family, abandon his wife, abandon his mother-in-law that he's been called to take care of. Instead, he brings Jesus back to them. That's an important way to balance the importance here of this call of costly discipleship. It doesn't mean necessarily that you abandon your family. Instead, it means that you bring Jesus to your family, that Jesus becomes the most important thing in your family, that you will bring it to them. And so that's what, that's what Simon does here. And it's, a, it's just important for us to notice that as we continue looking at this importance of discipleship here. So Simon uh, invites Jesus to his house, and, and we, we see that Simon's mother-in-law, is, she's ill. Uh, she's incapacitated with a fever. Now remember, this is uh, in the first century. It's thousands of years ago, and modern antibiotics are, are less than 100 years old. And so uh, for much of human history before our season, the idea of a fever was serious business. If your temperature got over 100 degrees, you were in a life-threatening place because you couldn't really do anything about it. You were just supposed to recover on your own. And so oftentimes fevers led to death. This is a, this is a big deal that Simon's mother-in-law has a, a fever when Jesus arrives at the house. And I wonder what the disciples are thinking at this moment. Uh, of course, they, they followed Jesus. They agreed to follow Jesus while they were fishing just a short time before, but I don't think they had really any idea what they were getting into. Uh, otherwise, they probably wouldn't have followed him. 
After all, they uh, decide, they know that Jesus is this good teacher, and so they decide to invite him back home uh, to their home synagogue. And imagine that, that you meet this friend, and he's a good teacher, and you say, hey, I want you to come meet all of my friends. And then he stands up in front of everyone, and he blows the doors off of the place. Everyone is terrified, including those four fishermen. And then, by the way, Jesus caps it off by casting a demon out by simply just speaking without lifting a finger. And so Jesus is here. He approaches Simon's mother-in-law. And if you see here, uh, the way Jesus handles himself is very caring. It's very affectionate. There's this book out there. It's called Jesus, Mean, and Wild. And it's all about Jesus, the picture of Jesus that we get in the Gospel of Mark. And one of the things that, he, that the author argues is that Mark is focused on a, a very hard Jesus. And when I say hard Jesus, I don't mean uncaring, but that Jesus has things to do. Jesus isn't afraid to be harsh. Jesus isn't afraid to call people to the carpet. He isn't afraid to say, repent. He isn't afraid to leave people if they're not following him the right way. And so when you you understand that Mark has this certain picture of Jesus that is a little harder than what we would probably expect, it's significant when we see texts like this. When we see that Jesus is caring. He's considerate for Simon's mother-in-law. Other Jewish rabbis in that day probably wouldn't have given this woman the time of day. She was unclean, she was ill, and they would have seen her as beneath them, but that's not Jesus. Jesus comes close to her. He grabs her hand. He helps her to her feet. It's a gift of physical touch in the midst of a friendship. It's something so, so simple, and yet it's extremely powerful. And the fever is gone with simply a touch of his hand. In the third book of of, uh, J.R.R. Tolkien's Lord of the Rings trilogy, he uh, describes this scene. There's this moment where uh, the future king of the kingdom, uh, Aragorn, he hides himself in this shroud and he goes and begins healing people who are injured and sick from the evil of the battle that has just taken place. And no one knows who this man is. No one in the city knows that this is the long-awaited king, the one they've been waiting for for hundreds of years. They just know that there's this healer in their midst. No one knows that he's the rightful king except for one nurse. And there's one nurse that she, she watches Aragorn, this future king, working among the sick for hours on end. And she realizes that he is the king. He doesn't announce that he's the king. She just realizes by watching him. And and there's this powerful moment where she says this, the hands of the king are healing hands and thus shall the rightful king be known. What a powerful description of Jesus here. The hands of our king are indeed healing hands. Jesus reveals that he is the king by how he cares for Simon's mother-in-law, by taking her by the hand, by helping her up. And here, we may not catch it right at first, but Jesus is giving us an insight into the end that his kingdom that he has just established, the end that it is headed toward. Now, it's not entirely clear in English because the translation misses this, but the word lifted up here is the same word that Jesus is, that use, is used time and time again to refer to Jesus' rising from the grave. And I think what's taking place here is that Mark is making a declaration as Jesus heals Simon's mother-in-law. He's making this declaration that Jesus' miracles are more than just simply a cool trick. 
They're not just a, a party trick that we can, we can watch and observe. They're a, they're a little bit of God's future kingdom breaking into the brokenness of this world. But even more than that, they're a sign that this future kingdom that God has come to establish will only be realized through the resurrection of the king. And if there's a resurrection, there must also be a death. You see, Jesus is just like Aragorn from the Lord of the Rings, where he reveals that he is the king, and he will show that even though evil is still around us, what his kingdom will be like by healing people. Each and every healing that Jesus does in the Gospel of Mark is a healing that drives Jesus ever closer to the cross, to the moment where everlasting healing will eventually and finally be won at the cross. And it's clear that this woman uh, responds to her complete and instant healing with joy because she gets up and immediately begins taking care of Jesus. The rest of the afternoon, she's waiting on him. She's waiting on the rest of his disciples. But Jesus' day isn't quite over yet. We, we notice as we continue that twilight comes, and with it comes the end of the Sabbath. Sabbath, uh, from a Jewish perspective, started on Friday at sundown and went till Saturday at sundown. And so here we are. Sabbath come, uh, comes to an end, and then all of a sudden, Simon and Andrew's house are overrun with people. The whole city is virtually at their door. And again, I, I want us to imagine what this, this moment would have been like. Simon's house is probably no larger than two, one or two rooms. It's now dark out, and this is, again, before electricity, so it's, it's really dark out at this moment. And then hundreds of people begin crowding around this one or two-room house, and they're waiting for Jesus. And so Jesus walks out into the crowd, and the moment the people see Jesus, the shouting begins. And people start shouting out, Jesus, heal me. Rabbi, here's my son. He desperately needs you. Miracle worker, please, please take away my pain. Take away my hurt. And the, crowds, the, the cries of the crowd are, are amplified more and more by, by the hissing and the screeching of demons that begin to manifest themselves as they are drawn to their own destruction, just like a moth is to the flame. And here, in the midst of this darkest, darkness, Jesus heals, and he heals, and he heals, and he delivers person after person after person from the darkness that they find themselves in. Later in his gospel, Mark tells us why Jesus spent so much time healing people. Mark chapter 6 says this, When he went ashore, he saw a great crowd, and he had compassion on them, because they were like sheep without a shepherd. And he began to teach them many things. In Mark chapter, I think it's chapter 5, Jesus is performing another healing and he notices that some power leaves him. It's, it's, a, it's a kind of an odd statement, something that we don't oftentimes think about when we think of Jesus, but one of the things that Mark wants us to know is that healing was taxing on Jesus. He is fully human and so this was something that was taxing on him and yet Jesus heals and heals and heals and the more healings he performs, more people gather because they don't want to miss out on the marvel of what is taking place that night. You see, that night was a clear picture of Jesus' authority, but it's also a clear picture of Jesus' compassion for the broken and the afflicted. He's tired. 
He is worn out, and yet Jesus ministers late into the night, far later than most people at that time would go to bed. And then he collapses on the floor of Simon's house, fast asleep. Uh, A few years ago, Crystal and I agreed, um, for as long as I was in pastoral ministry, one of the things that we would commit to was uh, it would be a necessity for our relationship and for my own physical health to take the Monday after Easter off. And so uh, I'm, I think I'm two out of three years, so I'm, I'm doing okay on that. But it was just a very trying, taxing season, and, and it's, it was just good for my soul to take that day off. And so it's one of the things that we've committed to. It's probably something that you've committed to in your own lives. Uh, when you go through a very hard time, a very... Uh, trying time, a taxing time on your life because of work or because of home or because of school, you just take some time off. Our instinct is to unplug. Our instinct is to sleep in and uh, to get some rest. And Jesus, he, he feels the same need. He feels this need to, to get refreshed, but he doesn't sleep in. He does something extraordinarily different. Jesus instead seeks rest that can only be found in relationship with his father. The crowds have only been gone for a few hours. Remember, this is a late night for Jesus that night. And yet Jesus wakes up far before anyone else, uh, far before sunrise, and he goes, sets out on his own to pray. Again, picture this scene. Jesus has just been met with popularity, with fame like you could not believe. He is soon going to be the most famous person in all of Galilee, even more famous than Herod the Tetrarch. And here Jesus is. All he wants to do is to be alone and a fellowship with his heavenly father. And so Jesus sets off and he has nothing but the clothes on his back and he begins traveling these dark dirt roads. And then suddenly he leaves the path until he wanders off into this uninhabited place, this desolate place, this place of wilderness where he will not be disturbed. And it's there that he begins to pray. Now, don't, don't miss the significance of where Jesus has gone. The, the word desolate here uh, is, is also the exact same word that is used as the word wilderness in verse 12. The wilderness, of course, is where Jesus goes and is tempted by Satan. So what is Mark saying here? Well, remember a couple of weeks ago as we were looking at the temptation of Jesus, uh, I argued that because Mark doesn't give us a clear end to Jesus' temptation, he's trying to say that Jesus is tempted for the rest of his life. And as we look at the rest of Jesus' life, specifically as we look at the garden, specifically as we look at the cross, this temptation that Jesus faces each and every day is this temptation to forget about the cross, to ignore the cross. It's a temptation to ignore God's plan, instead to go his own way, to ignore the suffering, but also to ignore the redemption that comes with Jesus' suffering. Now come back to this morning's text. Here is Jesus. It's early in the morning. He has just revealed himself publicly to everyone. Everyone loves him. People are clamoring over him. They they want him to keep doing these miracles. He could easily just set up shop here in Capernaum, and he he could have people flock to him, literally from the ends of the earth, to hear him teach, to be healed by him, to see the miracle worker of Capernaum, to be delivered from oppression. This is the man who makes evil spirits be silent with a word. Who could stand his power? Rome? Jesus could easily set up his own kingdom right here in Capernaum and rule the entire world. And yet Jesus goes to the wilderness. 
The world is at Jesus' fingertips. It's there for the taking. And so what does Jesus do? He goes back to the wilderness and he begins to pray. He begins to pray to his father. And we're not told the content of his prayers, but it's clear from the context that Jesus is, is far more concerned with being obedient to his father's plan, this plan that will lead him to the cross, than he is about the frenzy of the crowd. And so hours pass, and eventually Simon and these others that are searching for him, they find him, and what do they say? Ever the opportunists, they, they say to Jesus, hey, where, where you been? That was a good thing that we had going on last night. What are you doing out here all alone? If you keep all that up from last night, the crowds are only going to get bigger and bigger, and you're going to only get more famous and more famous, and you can change the world, Jesus, by just going back to Capernaum and keep doing what you were doing. For them, this is the kingdom that Jesus talks about. All crown and no cross. This is the first of countless moments that we're going to see in the Gospel of Mark where his disciples don't get it. They, they can't think past the roar of the crowds and on to Jesus' mission. And so if you ever wonder why Jesus doesn't actually answer the, the words or the question that the disciples ask in verse 37, it's because of this. Jesus just tells them what his mission is in verse 38. He says this, And he said to them, Let's go on to the next towns, that I may preach there also, for that is why I came out. And he went through all Galilee, preaching in their synagogues and casting out demons. Here's Jesus, and he rejects the opportunity to capitalize on this newfound popularity. Jesus has a bigger and more important mission in mind, and that is something that is far more important than healing, far more important than exorcism. As important as those things are to our compassionate king, there is something more important in Jesus' mind. Jesus' mission is to tell everyone about the kingdom that he is bringing, the gospel that will bring in that kingdom, and that gospel means his death and his resurrection. You see, Jesus could do exactly what the crowds, exactly what the disciples, exactly what that, that tempting voice in his mind wanted him to do. And he could just stay there and he could heal people for the rest of his life. But even healed people die. And they go to everlasting death if there's no cross. And so here is Jesus. And if he wants to bring everlasting healing, if he actually wants to restore everyone perfectly and finally, if he actually wants to bring everlasting victory over evil incarnate, then if Jesus is actually going to usher in this kingdom, then he has a different road ahead of him. And it leads him to the cross. And so Jesus and anyone who would follow him, they set off and they begin to proclaim their message, this message of the kingdom. And they travel throughout all of Galilee, and yes, Jesus heals people. Yes, Jesus still casts out demons. But just like Simon's mother-in-law, these are just pictures, glimpses of the everlasting kingdom that he has come to bring. But first, he has to go to the cross. That's the message of Mark 1, 21 through 39. All of that in 30 hours. What can we learn from this text? I mentioned two things, two vitally important truths. I already alluded to them earlier this morning. First, in response to Mark's question, who is this? Who is Jesus? The answer is simply someone who is more powerful than you and I could ever fathom. This is a man whose teaching causes people to tremble and fear and in awe as though God himself was in their very presence because, surprise, God himself is in their very presence. 
His victory over evil incarnate, other sorts of evil like sickness, all of those things that afflict people, all of that is assured by merely a word. Jesus speaks and supernatural beings of immense power, immense influence are forced to submit to him. Jesus heals by touching people and life and renewal and wholeness enter their bodies, foreshadowing this day when everyone will experience that, when everyone will have no more pain, no more sickness, no more hurt, no more grief, no more sorrow. So the question, who is this Jesus? Well, in the beginning of of Mark's gospel, Mark claims that Jesus is God. He claims that Jesus has come to usher in this kingdom of God. And here, in the very first day of Jesus's public ministry, he proves that. So the question, who is this, or or how the crowds ask it, what is this? Well, he's the king with more power and more compassion than you could ever fathom. And so after reading this text, do you not think that he can take care of whatever afflicts you? Whatever afflicts you, do you not think that Jesus can take care of it? The power and authority of Jesus are a balm for the soul of anyone who struggles, Anyone who seems to be losing the battle against evil, anyone who longs for healing, anyone who longs for deliverance, anyone who wonders why when they suffer pain and hardship in this life. Paul writes that the power that was at work raising Jesus from from the dead is now at work in us. When he says this in Ephesians 1, this is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the age to come. Jesus is Lord. Jesus is King. And his power is at work in order to bring you into his new creation. And so that's the first truth from this text. Who is Jesus? Well, Jesus is the King. He's God, and he is more powerful than you can possibly imagine. A second truth is a warning. As we worked our way through this text, how did people respond to Jesus? How did the crowds respond to Jesus? They respond with wonder, amazement. They begin to tell everyone around them about this powerful miracle worker, about this power of, of healing and his teaching. And crowds begin to flock to Jesus wherever he goes. Soon he's not even going to be able to enter into a town because of the crowds. He's soon going to be so popular that the people in power are feeling threatened by him. Now ask, is that what Jesus wanted? Is that what Jesus wanted? Did Jesus want crowds? Did Jesus want people drooling over his ability to heal? People drooling over his ability to cast out demons? Consider again the message of the kingdom that Jesus calls us all to in in Mark chapter 1, verses 14 and 15. Now after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. Repent and believe the gospel. Jesus here is met by large crowds, by those who are amazed by his his powerful teaching, by his message, by this power that he displays and his ability to heal, by his authority. And yet, in large part, they completely ignore Jesus' message, a message to faith, 
a message to trust in the gospel, a message to repent and follow him. Why is it that Jesus is so popular the moment he heals someone? It's because the crowds, they want an entertainer. They don't want a savior. The crowds may want Jesus, but their their devotion to him is superficial. It's shallow. If you take away the healings, if you take away the exorcisms, you take away the miracles, who will still follow Jesus? The sobering truth that we see in Zechariah, this prophecy of what happens to Jesus at the cross, is that no one follows him. No one follows him after all those things are taken away. What does Jesus want? He doesn't want a superficial devotion to him, this association with him. He wants a wholehearted devotion to him. That's why Jesus retreats to the desert. That's why Jesus leaves what is considered a good thing by the disciples in Capernaum to continue his message for the kingdom throughout the rest of Galilee. Now briefly consider what that means for us today. That's a question. What do you want from Jesus? What do you want from Jesus? Are you guilty of the same heart of the crowds? One that's not interested in a wholehearted devotion to Jesus, but instead one that is just content with this superficial following of Jesus, seeing Jesus as this form of entertainment. Is your pursuit about, uh, of Jesus something that's primarily about you and what you can get out of him? Or is it about laying your life down for the sake of knowing him? Think about the implications of this on Sunday mornings. Do we come to be entertained? Do we come to be entertained with awesome music, with awesome teaching, with all of these things? And the moment that that's not true, that we're not getting anything out of this, are we guilty of the same heart as the crowds? What do we want from Jesus? This is such a complex issue. Christ-exalting music is, is a good thing. Sermons that, that get to the heart are, are, are a good thing. That j- just like wanting to be healed was a good thing from these crowds. But is it, is it superficial? Is it shallow? Or does it lead somewhere deeper? If we expose the self, ourselves to God on a Sunday morning without a radical pursuit of him, are we just like the crowds? What do you want from Jesus? The warning of Mark's gospel is that we will come, if we come face to face with the reality of who Jesus is, if we come face to face with his great authority, if we do all that and our conclusion is simply the superficial half-hearted response and go, well, that was pretty cool, then we're in a very dangerous place. What do you want for Jesus? What do you want from Jesus? And that's the question that Mark wants from us, is asking us this morning. What do you want from Jesus? This week, take, take time to reflect on your, your interactions with God. Take time to reflect on your thoughts about God, your thoughts about the church, and consider if, like the crowds, even like the disciples here, you're content with a superficial following, and you're missing the point of who Jesus is and what he wants from you. What do you want from Jesus? You see, our text gives us plenty of ways how not to respond. We can look to the the crowds. Now, their desire for healing, the desire to see the power of God on display, it's not intrinsically wrong, but it was divorced from any sense of true desire to follow Jesus, to press in and to know God. So what do you want from Jesus? As we close, consider that there's only one good response in this text. 
It comes from the most unlikely of places. It doesn't come from the scribes. It doesn't come from the crowds. It doesn't come from the disciples. It comes from Simon's mother-in-law. Verse 31. And he came and he took her by the hand and lifted her up and the fever left her. And she began to serve them. How does this woman who has been healed respond to Jesus? The text doesn't tell us that she's amazed. It doesn't tell us that she's marveling, although those are probably almost certainly the case. It says that she instantly begins serving Jesus. She instantly sees this as an opportunity to minister to Jesus. Her number one priority in her life is to take care of the one who is taking care of her. For Simon's mother-in-law, Jesus is not an entertainer. Jesus is not even a, a, a miracle worker. He is a savior. He's a deliverer. And so she responds with worship. She responds with, with adoration to this one who has saved her. And oh, that, if that were how we responded. Whenever we pressed in to know God, to not follow the way of the crowds, not to follow the way of the disciples, to try to capitalize on Jesus' popularity, but with this superficial feeling towards Jesus, but instead we would press in to know him and to serve him. What do you want from Jesus? What do you want from the king on the cross? What do you want from the one who calls you to come and die that you might truly live? What do you want from Jesus? Let's pray. Jesus, we confess that all too often we're like the crowds. We can be fickle. We can be half-hearted and superficial. We can be like the disciples who think that we are in a place of of priority, a place of, of exaltation, and completely miss the call of the gospel. So God, help us to follow you wholeheartedly, to pursue you with everything, Be gracious to us, O God, because we want you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.